otázka šestá, tlumočení jako produkt. Do této otázky patří textové přístupy, věrnost, ekvivalence účinku, kvalita, její definice, zkoumání a vývoj kvality, chybíš tlumočení a výzkum v komunitním tlumočení. A začněme s těmi textovými přístupy. There are seven aspects of textuality. Cohesion, coherence, acceptability, informativity, intertextuality, situa- uh, situationality and intentionality. Česky koheze, koherence, přijatelnost, informativnost, intertextovost, zasazení do situace a zaměřenost. Um, the concept of text and discourse processing have been applied to interpreting by Hattem and Mason in uh, uh, 2000, more or less. Um, as part of their general discourse framework for the analysis uh, of uh, translation, uh, they use three key concepts of discourse theory. Um, to different to distinguish different types of interpreting they talk about texture structure and context texture is connected to simultaneous interpreting structure is connected to consecutive interpreting and context is connected to lesson interpreting so let's start with texture the term texture covers various devices, discourse markers, prepositions, conjunctions, and they are used in establishing continuity of sense, uh, thus making a sequence of uh, sentences, sentences operational. It does not cover only cohesion, but also coherence, and texture is necessary at all times. It is interpreter's point of departure. As was already mentioned, it is connected to simultaneous interpreting. Um, the interpreter is seeing uh, context and structure only partially when interpreting simultaneously. Um, the interpreter reacts and interacts uh, with uh, the utterance. And there are textual clues um, such as anaphoric and cataphoric references, substitution, ellipses, conjunction, lexical cohesion, this is all that uh, the interpreter uh, works with. Um, in uh, simultaneous um, interpreting, um, there is a quite rich variety of texture signal that um, the interpreter has to rely on. Uh, so, and, and also in order to anticipate now let's get to structure. Um, cohesion uh, is uh, and uh, coherence are also necessary for uh, structure. And otherwise, uh, the uh, otherwise the utterance would be just disconnected sequence of sentences. So we could say that structure and texture work together. Um, but structure focuses on compositional plan, let's say, and uh, consecutive uh, interpreting is connected to uh, structure because uh, the interpreter needs to know 
how to structure the utterance or what the structure of the utterance is. Uh, the interpreter also needs to know what to write down. Mm, and the text unit that the interpreter works with is autonomous. That's why the structure is important. There is a load on memory. And it is also important to take notes in the right way. Uh, of course, the interpreter t uh, writes down ideas, not uh, specific words. And that brings us to um, that brings us to context, which uh, is connected to license interpreting. Um, when we talk about context. Uh, we talk about specific rhetoric uh, purpose of the text or of the utterance. So the interpreter uh, needs to know whether it's uh, whether the participants of the communication are arguing or whether uh, there's uh, they are narrating or whatever whatever they're doing. Mm, the context is based on attitude. It, it works with markedness of the text, uh, with discourse dynamism, also with the genre. Um, and based on that, the interpreter uses the right register. Uh, for example, there will be a different register for diplomat speech uh, than when it's uh, in a formal business meeting, let's say. And there are certain do's and don'ts that the interpreter needs to know. Of course, it's uh, culture-specific. Uh, context it, uh, is connected to intertextuality and uh, to pragmatics. It works with uh, the speaker or the participant's uh, intention. And as was mentioned, it, it is connected to... or. Uh, License interpreting is based on uh, on this. Uh, is based on context. Um, each chunk of uh, the output is expected to be coherent in its own right, contextually. Um, the main research uh, context is the main resource that the interpreter wor works with, and. Um, the first portion of the text that the interpreter gets is self-contained unit. As the interaction develops, the knowledge of content context uh, gets better, gets higher, or is is better for the interpreter. Uh, and that again brings us to the idea that context is everything. The knowledge of um, structure, texture, and context ha can have pedagogic implications. Uh, interpreter training institutions over the world combine training in different forms of interpreting. Um, the philosophy behind such an approach is that the interpreter must be prepared to handle whatever is thrown at them. So what are the pedagogic implications of um, simultaneous model uh, when we talk about texture. Well, the trainings should focus on the devices that make the text a viable and meaningful unit of communication. For example, cohesive devices that make the text coherent. When we talk about 
uh, check in English. Um, there is the problem of functional sentence perspective and working with thematic and grammatic information. When we talk about the co consecutive module and structure, um, we have to bear in mind that uh, tech or structure is important, but it should not be dealt with in isolation. And the trainees should learn how to put textual devices and contextual clues into coherent structures. Um, of course, part of this is also note taking and learning how to and what to write down. And also um, adding cohesive means uh, because um, novice interpreters tend to not use them as they do not write them down usually in their notation. And then we're getting to license module based on context, uh, and special training in interacting with uh, the intertextual potential of signs, text, discourses, genres, and other small scale, scale socio-cultural objects. Um, cultural knowledge and social skills are crucial in this, uh, this part. Um, the, the interpreter should think about the target text receiver and, of course, as mentioned, should know the sociocultural background. Um, also, when we discuss pedagogic implications, um, it is important to mention that every text can be either static or dynamic. When the text is static, it means that it's stable and the expectations are fulfilled. This is for beginners, for uh, novice interpreters that do not have enough experience. Um, when the text is dynamic, it means that it is unstable and there are certain deviations from expectations. This is for more experienced interpreters. And... Um, these are the texts or the utterances that the interpreters work with in order to be able to handle everything that is shown is thrown at them, as was already mentioned. So this means that text is unpredictable. Interpreters should not adhere to their expectations because that might lead to mistakes. Uh, texts, uh, texts are unstable. Uh, which means that there is certain textual instability. Uh, source text uh, intonation patterns are good and reliable, but syntactic patterns are unpredictable. Um, now we're getting to equivalent effect. Um, equivalent effect talks about uh, the intention of interpreter. Um, Interpreter's intention should be to make his audience understand the message as well as it was understood by the original audience. There is certain pragmatic force which talks about what is meant but not, not explicitly stated. The interpreter should translate the utterance in such a way that the pragmatic effect is maintained. The interpreter may want to apply the technique of explicitation. Um, when we talk about fidelity and accuracy, um, there are a lot of uh, theoreticians 
that approach it in a bit different way. For example, Harris says that the norm of an honest spokesperson is uh, the people who speak on behalf of others, interpreters among them, re-express original speakers' ideas in the manner of expressing them as accurately as possible and without omission and not mixing them up with their own ideas and expression. Expression. So, however, this is uh, problematic. Um, how can we define fidelity? Uh, is the interpreter saying the same thing as uh, the source text said? Um, is the interpreter faithful to the form or to the content? How can we even measure whether the interpreter is faithful or not? Can when is it mistake? When is it omission? When is it addition? Uh, Beric uh, discusses this. Is it deliberate or or not? Is it um, the interpreter's strategy or is it his mistake? It's quite difficult to um, to define this or to to distinguish. Uh, also, the next problem is the. There's quite strong focus on language, and it's difficult to account for non-verbal features that are, of course, also part of um, part of the communication. So, studying the product is problematic because, um, well, as mentioned, the the transcript does not account for paralinguistic features, uh, which can be the non-verbal features, but also uh, pauses, hesitation sounds, uh, accents, um, and so on. And also there is a lack of material because someone has to transcribe the, the interpreting um, or the, the, the original speeches, which is uh, time-consuming and quite annoying. Quality is elusive context and there are different expectations to it. So it, it is even difficult to define quality. Mm, the expectations differ. Uh, for example, public uh, ha has different expectations than professionals. Organizations have different expectations than uh, the set expectations already are. Um, and now there is something about oral literate continuum, which I have no idea how it is um, connected to topic of quality or interpreting as product but anyway uh, let's go through it since uh, someone added it to this question um, there is um, uh, there is an article by Miriam Schlesinger that is uh, discussed and that talks about oral literal uh, literate continuum um, she she uses this term that was first coined by Mona Baker and let's let's first discuss what it actually means a universal is uh, a proposition applicable to all situations a continuum is a sequence of numerous elements each of which is similar to the previous one but the last one is very different from the first one which does not make much sense but uh, this oral literate um, oral literate continuum is discussing 
the connection between literary text and oral text. We have literal literary text on one side and oral text on the other side, and they are sort of connected and they shift towards each other. Um, oral literate continuum, continuum talks about an equalizing effect. Uh, Schlesinger found that simultaneous interpreting reduced the range of the oral, oral literate continuum and consistently rendered a literate text more oral in either language direction. Similarly, simultaneous tended, interpreting tended to increase the literateness of oral type. Uh, it does not matter whether the text is spoken or written. What matters is the qualities associated with those modes. The text is understood as an abstract unit. You can have um, oral spoken text, which has literate features, meaning that it has features of written discourse, like formal speech or some legal documents that is read aloud, or you can have a written text with oral features, such as dialogues in a novel. So this means that you cannot really um, distinguish or you cannot really divide text on literal, literate and oral because often they are overlaying, if I understood this correctly, but I'm not really sure about this. Um, the University Schlesinger proposes works on the principle that during simultaneous interpreting, the extremely literate and extremely oral texts move towards the center of the oral literate continuum. This universal is called leveling out, the others uh, being explicitation, simplification, and normalization. So what does she mean by these uh, terms? Well, um, she mentions translation and interpreting universals, which means something we can find across of all language. Explicitation is overall tendency to speak things out rather than to leave them implicit. Simplification is tendency to speak so as the listeners understand. Norma normalization, also called conservatism, is tendency to exaggerate features of the target language and to conform to its typical patterns. Leveling out, Czeskinivelizace, is the tendency to, of translated texts to gravitate towards the center of continuum, oral writ, this oral writ, uh, written. Um, Pym's conclusion is that translators and interpreters tend to be risk-averse and that there are no universals because in certain situations they fail to hold. So why is Schlesinger's continuum, oral literate continuum, important? Well, when we discuss uh, text types and uh, textual approach towards interpreting, uh, we must differentiate between literary text and oral text. Um, they differ, for example, in degree of planning. Literary texts are highly planned before they are produced. There is greater lexical density, there is a lot of nominalizations, modifiers, subordinating conjunctions, and so on. On the other hand, oral texts uh, have more fragmented syntax, they use coordinating conjunctions, 
there is lower textural cohesion. Uh, what is important is that great, greater knowledge of the context is assumed. There are redundancies, pauses, repetitions. Um, there is uh, oft, uh, often there are often uh, allusions and so on. Uh, not allusions, ellipses. Sorry. <laughs> um, and also there is interaction between the speaker and the audience because the speaker is checking whether the content of the message is understood. Mm. Literary and oral sections also differ in terms of shared content and knowledge. In literary texts there is a need for explicitation. More context must be provided because written texts are not usually context dependent. Whereas oral texts require that the addressee know, uh, know more about the context. And it is assumed that they already know something. Um, literary, texts, literary texts use intensification. They have more cohesion markers, as was already mentioned. Uh, oral texts tend to be more colloquial. Uh, literal texts also, literary texts also have small number of non-verbal features, whereas non-verbal features are uh, quite prominent in oral texts. There are hesitations, false starts, repetitions, and so on. Schlesinger dealt with this, and she did research on uh, several source texts. She, she used Hebrew texts and English texts and um compared um she came with the result that literate texts become uh, more oral uh but oral type english texts provide mixed inconsistent results in her uh, in her research um she wanted to find explicitation which is a feature of literate te texts but instead uh, she found more implica implication and um, the text became even more oral. Pym claims that implication is a risk-reducing strategy applied by many interpreters. They go for implication rather than explicitation because they are usually less familiar with the content than the speaker and the audience. And therefore, PIM doesn't consider the equalizing universal as universal. The interpreters on, only imply something. Uh, they don't explain or explicate. And now we're getting to quality. As uh, I already mentioned, it is an elusive concept and there are different expectations um, based on where there are the people are professionals or just general public and, and so on and so on. Um, let's have a look uh, at quality in terms of development and how different theoreticians uh, see it. The first who was um, interested in quality and who uh, focused on, on it in research was Beeler. Uh, in 1986, she came up with uh, 11 criteria that uh, were defining quality. Uh, criteria such as uh, 
Natifex and uh, I'm so, I'm sorry. Um, she came up with uh, and now we're getting to uh, quality that was already mentioned. It is uh, an elusive concept, and um, there are different expectations. Also, different scholars and theoreticians view quality uh, in a different way. Let's have a look in development on development in time and start with Beeler because she was sort of the first person that was doing research on quality. And in 1986, she came up with 16 criteria defining quality, such as accent, the pleasantness of voice, fluency of delivery, logical cohesion of the utterance, sense consistency, completeness, correct grammar, and so on and so on. Um, well, she conducted a survey on... 47 uh, Ike members who were supposed to order these criteria according to their importance. Um, this sense consistency was um, viewed as most important and least important was the appearance of uh, the interpreter and native accent. Um, this criteria was later tested by Kurz. She chose eight uh, criteria, criteria and put them to, uh, to test. Um, the next theoretician that definitely needs to be mentioned is uh, Gerbitz. Uh, she sees quality as a social construct. She says that quality is complex and relative. And the person assessing it projects his own criteria and the outcome is also context-dependent. Um, there are several definitions of quality. Um, quality can be seen as exception. It means that it is something special or exclusive, uh, something miraculous. This is a traditional notion. Uh, quality is uh, instinctively recognizable and identifiable. It requires neither definition nor description, nor explicit heuristics or quality control measures. It is virtually unattainable. It cannot be acquired, no matter how good the training methods or approaching approaches to teaching may be. Um, when quality is exception, it is exceeding or meeting high standards. The second construct of quality as exception relates quality to excellence. Uh, quality exceeds high standards. It, it is elitist view. It uh, posits it so high that quality is very hard to attain. And the third uh, approach uh, to quality as exception is compliance with standards. Quality in this sense is no longer an exclusive property because stakeholders define and ensure attainable criteria that constitute quality, but the benchmarks are still so high that the final product is perceived as a type of luxury uh, item. Um, quality can also be seen as perfection. This view supports the premise that Perfection can be attained through personal commitment and maintained through consistent and continuous effort. 
Uh, it also talks about zero def uh, defects or excellence uh, too. It ensures that everything is consistently correct. While excellence, as mentioned in the uh, first uh, well, first sense, uh, focuses on the special. Excellence in this uh, sense concentrates on the perfect. Quality is seen as something that conforms to certain specifications. Um, these specifications are not to be equated with the notion of defined standards. In this construct, quality cannot be measured against specific standards. It is the responsibility of the members of a given system to ensure that interpretations are accurate and that no mistakes are made. One danger with this approach is that a performance may be eminently accurate and still be potentially inappropriate to a given situation. Um, and uh, the last way to, to see quality or to judge quality is uh, fitness for purpose, which means that uh, it is satisfying for the customer, it is satisfying their needs, and it is sort of uh, okay-ish. Hmm. Another scholar that discusses quality is Kopczynski, uh, a Polish author that differentiates between two major approaches. Linguistic approach that focuses on uh, equivalence and correspondence and compares a source text to a target text with emphasis on, fid emphasis on fidelity. The second approach that he mentions is pragmatic approach that focuses more on the context and emphasizes speakers and audiences role in the whole act. So um, Kopczynski says that uh, you can judge quality or assess quality uh, using either linguistic or pragmatic approach. Um, Mose Mercer says that optimum quality is the quality an interpreter can provide if external conditions are appropriate. So it is important to bear in mind that um, external conditions also play a significant role at the, and the interpreter is not the only one who um, can influence the, the quality of final product. So as you can see, there are many approaches towards quality and Various theoreticians see it in a different way. Um, I already mentioned quality as perfection. This approach by Garbic that says that quality is an exception, perfection, or fitness for a purpose. Um, but there is also, the, uh, I mentioned, sort of two variations. And the second variation of quality as perfection um, sees quality as striving for perfect action and seeks to develop a general culture of quality. We could say that quality is perceived as the collective mission of all agents in a given system, where the focus is on the process rather than the product. There are certain institutions that subscribe to this approach. Uh, for example, professional associations. In this context, we could, uh, we could talk about AIC. And members of these associations or organizations assume collective responsibility for upholding quality 
and promulgating it to those outside the profession. The primary drawback of this democratization of responsibility is the fact that social systems are not stable entities. Mm. Probably the best and most used standard for quality is fitness for a purpose, which talks about um, fulfilling the purpose or satisfying customers' uh, needs and expectations. Quality, according to this definition, is neither elitist nor exclusive nor difficult to attain. Every product and every service is potentially useful and has the potential to satisfy the customer. Even though this appears to be a sensible approach at first glance, it leaves a number of problems unsolved by skirting some of the essential issues. Like, for whom is the product or service useful? How, are we, how do we assess usefulness in the first place? Uh, can we divide, how can we divide the concept? Well, there are three categories. There is the satisfaction of customer needs, um, value for money, and usefulness determined by the service provider or quality as mission. The third variant uh, focuses on quality assurance as the declared mission purpose of a service uh, provider or institution. Although this construct also entails satisfying customers' expectations quality, this notion of quality emphasizes the role of the service providers who take on the predominant role in determi determining what quality is. According to this viewpoint, uh, a high-quality service provider is one who states uh, their mission on the basis of clearly defined standards and is effective in attaining the self-declared goals. Another theoretician that talks about um, quality is Pehaker and he uses uh, onion model to talk about this. There is a re relation between interpreting a service and interpret uh, interpreting as product. And Pehaker says that um, interpreting should be successful, equivalent, adequate, and accurate. Uh, when it is successful, um, there is successful communicative interaction. When it is equivalent, uh, it means that it has the intended effect. Um, when it is adequate, uh, it means that it contains uh, the expressions that were in um, the source language and the source text, and what is uh, accurate, it means that uh, there are uh, there is a rendition of uh, the source text. Mm. There, there is some empirical uh, some empirical research, but it's important to say that. It's it's not easy to do research on quality since there is a lot of subjectivity in that. Což nás přivádí k chybám v tlumočení a jejich korekci. Začneme s rozdělením chyb podle Barika, ale je nutné zmínit, že Barikovo rozdělení není úplně validní a aplikovatelné, jelikož je poměrně subjektivní. Obecně je obtížné stanovit si kritéria hodnocení a pokud se bavíme o chybách v tlumočení, 
tak nevždy se můžeme nějak, nějakou tlumočníkovou chybu označit stoprocentně jako chybu, jelikož to může být tlumočnická strategie, anebo k tomu může docházet vlivem mnoha různých proměných. Barik napsal, napsal článek o chybách, které rozděluje na vynechání informace, přidání informace a nahrazení a chyby. Uh, in English, additions, omissions, errors and substitutions. Začněme s tím vynecháním informace. Prvním, to je první z uvedených typů neadekvátního přetlumočení textu a samozřejmě se vztahuje pouze na relevantní a přínosné informace. Nevztahuje se na opakované informace nebo nedokončené začátky, vědví, zpávky a tak podobně. Barik to vynechání rozděluje na čtyři typy. Přeskočení informace, vynechání z důvodu neporozumění, vynechání z důvodu spoždění a vynechání sloučením. Pojďme se podívat, co ty jednotlivé, co ty jednotlivé vynechání tedy znamenají. Přeskočení tlumoč, informace znamená, že tlumočník neuvede nějakou lexikální jednotku, jako například příslovečné určení. A má, toto přeskočení má zpravidla minimální důsledky. Vydychání z důvodu ne, neporozumění znamená, že tlumočník není schopen jednotku buď to přetlumočit, nebo ji nerozumí. Důsledkem toho vynechání můžou být komplikace, jako například to, že jeho projev není koherentní. A pak mluvíme o vynechání z důvodu opoždění oproti výchozímu textu, čemuž samozřejmě dochází, pokud tlumočník příliš zaostává za výchozím textem. Je voice pen, to už o tom už jsem mluvila několikrát. A ta čtvrtá, to čtvrté vynechání je vynechání sloučením. To je tedy situace, kdy tlumočník vynechá určitou informaci kvůli tomu, že například v cílovém textu uspořádá věty jinak než ve výchozím textu. Anglicky se tady, těm, se tady ty jednotlivé vynechání jmenují uh, skipping omission, comprehension omission, delay omission and compounding omission. A teď se dostáváme k přidání informace, kdy se přidáním informace rozumí použití nové informace v cílovém textu, ačkoliv nebyla uvedena ve výchozím textu. To také barik rozděluje na několik, na několik typů. Může jít buď od přidání příslovečného určení nebo jiné lexikální jednotky, která upravuje kvalitu informace, nebo může jít o přidání více příslovečných určení, přívlastků a podobně v krátkém úseku textu což je podobné jako přidání. Příslovečné určení, ale jenom jich je víc. Um, pak máme přidání vztahu. Nejdlumočník přidává spojky nebo jiné slovní druhy. Uh, přidává také lexikální vztah mezi jednotkami anebo staví do vztahu věty. A to, tak, jak to, a to odlišně, než to bylo v tom výchozím textu. Dalším přidáním uh, je přidání závěru. A to může jít ruku v ruce s jiným odklony od textu, s vynecháním nebo neporozuměním. Spočívá v přidání informace k souvětí, aniž by přidala 
jakkoliv důležité jednotky, ať už semanticky, tak lexikálně. Takže to přidávání informací úplně nemusí, um, nemusí nějak pozměňovat význam, význam toho projevu. Uh, a anglicky se těm při, si ty přidání dělí na uh, qualifier edition, elaboration edition, relationship edition and closure edition. A tou poslední kategorií jsou nahrazení a chyby. Nahrazením barik myslí záměnu informace vyslovené řečníkem za informací jinou. Takováto záměna se může pohybovat v rozsahu slova, ale i věd. Um, může se jednat o jemnou semantickou chybu, což je nepřesnost převodu lexikální jednotky, která pouze lehce narušuje původní smysl. A nebo se může jednat o hrubou semantickou chybu, která již hrubě narušuje původní smysl. Může jít o nepřesný převod lexikální jednotky, který ale podobně jako jemná semantická chyba nemá vliv na význam celku. Dále uvádí jemnou změnu vyjádření myšlenky, což znamená, že tlumočník sice trošku jinak formuluje ten výchozí text, ale nepoškozuje celkovou myšlenku výchozího textu. A poté může docházet k podstatným změnám vyjádření myšlenky, kdy tlumočník jinak formuluje výchozí text a tím sice ovlivní význam textu, ale celková podstata výchozího textu zůstává nezměněna. A pak tou největší chybou je hrubá změna vyjádření myšlenky, kdy tlumočník změní smysl textu a může, můžeme tedy takovýto převod považovat za zcela chybný. Chybám samozřejmě nedochází jen na straně tlumočníka, ale může docházet chybám i na straně řečníka. Pojďme se tedy podívat jak, na to, jak by si s nimi tlumočník měl poradit. Obecně můžeme říci, že řečníci dělají méně chyb, než si často tlumočníci myslí. Při řečníkově chybě, která je očividně pouze přeřekem, je možné jej okamžitě opravit a nějak se k tomu nevyjadřovat. Například, když se jedná o nějakou diskuzi a řeší se tam nějaká čísla, řečník chce říct půl milionů a řekne 500 milionů, tak to je jasné, že tlumočník může takovou chybu upravit. Ovšem řešníková chyba, o které si tlumočník myslí, že není logická a nesedí do kontextu. Například nějaká chemická konference, kdy tlumočník řekne, proto jsem využil lehký inertní plyn jako vodík, tak tlumočník se může, sice, se může pouze domnívat, že se jedná o chybu, ale nemusí. nemusí. Takže... Může dodat něco jako využil, využil jsem plyn jako vodík, říká řečník, ale myslím, že má na mysli helium. Tlumočník tedy nemůže být obviněn z toho, že něco špatně přetlumočil, a protože tam dodal, protože pouze dodal nějakou smysluplnou odpověď. Pokud řečník udělá chybu a, není, a tlumočník si není jistý, jestli si toho je řečník vědom nebo ne, um, Může dodat, říká řečník, tím způsobem se nějakým, tím se nějakým způsobem distancuje od toho projevu. Pokud by řečník mluvil nejasně, například musí mluvit cizím jazykem, nemá smysl za každou jeho větou říkat, říká řečník. Spíše se budeme snažit tlumočit to, co dává smysl a to, jak chápeme, co chce řečník říci. 
Na konci řečníkové projevu pak můžeme dodat, že nebylo zcela jasné, co má řečník na mysli, proto musel hovořit jiným jazykem. A tak jako takhle není vhodné tyto vzůzky používat moc často, pokud už se stane, že řečník udělá chybu a tlumočníky přetlumočí bez opravy a následně za ním někdo přijde a obviní ho z toho, že to byla jeho chyba. Samozřejmě by to měl tlumočník uznat, protože klient má vždy pravdu a tlumočník ne. <laughs> jak lze chybám v tlumočení předcházet a jak je řešit? Pokud bychom neporozuměli řečníkovi při konsekutivním tlumočení, je možné samozřejmě se ho zeptat. Pokud to samozřejmě tlumočníka nějak nesnižuje, samozřejmě se nesmí opakovat příliš často. Při tlumočení je také možné zcela zralé tlumočníka vystoupit. Hezký příklad uvedla profesorka Korcová. Tlumočník muž tlumočí projev těhotné řečnice, která projev uzavře slovy a tak jsem otěhotněla. Tlumočník pak řekne, a tak jsem otěhotněla, řekla řečnice. Je možné ale i jiné vystoupení, například již výše zmíněnou prozbou o zopakování, případně vlastní omluvou za chybně tlumočení úsek nebo slovo. Klient má zpravidla pravdu tam, kdy ale vím, že klient mývá tlumočníky problémy, si můžu stát i za svým. Všeobecně se ale předpokládá, že tlumočník přece jen spolkne hořkou pilulku a uzná svou chybu, ačkoliv ví, že tomu tak nutně nemusí být. Jak můžeme řešit chyby v simultánním tlumočení? Mohou nastat zejména při anticipaci, kdy tlumočník špatně anticipoval to, co tlumočník, kdy tlumočník špatně anticipoval to, co řekne řečník. Pokud se nejedná o nějaké nepodstatné detaily, tak je zbytečné je opravovat. Ovšem, pokud se jedná o závažné chyby, které, které ovlivňují projev, je lepší se omluvit a nebo opravit. Nyní se dostáváme k výzkumu v komunitním tlumočení. And that's again in English. The research in community interpreting has proliferated tremendously in the past two decades. There are main fields, which is discourse analysis and pragmatics, but also sociology and psychology. Um, Some theoreticians Uh, suggest that sociological and linguistic ethnographic approach to community interpreting is uh, necessary. And um, some previous research methods starting started being questions, such as questionnaires on interviews. This, again, gets us back to the need for interdisciplinarity and the need of cooperation of different... Um, different theoreticians and specialists because sometimes interpreters do not have enough uh, theoretical background. Mm. For example, Hale claims that there seems to be no consistent link between the results of research, the little training available and the practice of interpreters with, with these three dimensions, often working in isolation from each other. She goes on to say that many interpreting instructors are experienced practitioners who have not received academic research-based training themselves and base their curricula on practical experience alone, therefore not much research being done. 
Uh, she also advocates interdisciplinarity and identifies four main approaches uh, adopted by scholars doing research on community interpreting. And these are discourse analysis, ethnography, questionnaires, experiments using uh, methods from psycholinguistic and psychology. There are new questions uh, that need to be answered when it comes to community uh, interpreting. Uh, and these are, are there significant differences between service providers' perception of the interpreting process when their clients are native-born members of linguistic minorities, such as the deaf and French-speaking residents of Quebec or Italian speakers in Switzerland, as opposed to newly arrived immigrants? Um, next question could be, do the former uh, establish long-term relationships with interpreters that affect perception of interpreter-mediated interactions. Um, what impact does culture have on expectations of interpreter impartially? Are jurors more favorably disposed towards a criminal defendant who struggles to communicate in English when uh, testifying at trial? Or towards one who communicates smoothly through a competent interpreter? And one of the questions also can be, can certain personality traits be identified and as indicators of success for interpreter trainees. And when we talk about um, research and interpreting, I would say that it's quite important to also mention the role of interpreter, because uh, the role of interpreter is a lot different in community interpreting than it is, for example, in conference interpreting or in high consecutive foreign liaison when there is uh, some former, very formal situation. And the roles are discussed, I think, in the next question or maybe in the question number eight. Yep, so that's all for question number six.